From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The SAT and ACT are losing traction across the country. A new Colorado law makes it optional for public colleges and universities to require that applicants submit standardized test scores. CU Boulder has already gone test optional. How are they hoping that it changes their student body? Then, it's been nearly a decade since Colorado legalized recreational cannabis, but the criminal justice system is slow to catch up. You know, you you feel like it's unfair. I mean, it's it's legalized now. And I'm wondering, why aren't they seeing it? You know, seeing what, you know, I'm in here for, for cannabis. Today, from hopelessness in prison to breaking barriers in a business that's largely white, On Something explores what the state's drug laws and cannabis industry convey about social inequity. Snap Judgment. Storytelling with the beat. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace. Welcome to Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Standardized tests just lost some weight in Colorado. A new bill signed into law this session makes it so Colorado's public colleges and universities no longer have to consider SAT or ACT scores, and students no longer have to include them in their applications. Testing optional practices are slowly becoming the norm across the country. What does that mean for colleges and high school seniors? Clark Brigger is the executive director of admissions for CU Boulder. Clark, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. It's great to be here this morning. Chris Bennett is a recent doctoral student at Vanderbilt University. He's been studying test optional practices across the country. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Clark, CU Boulder, along with the rest of the University of Colorado system, has already made standardized test scores optional on applications. What have you noticed so far? Yeah, it's been amazing uh, creating greater diversity and access. We've had over 10,000 students apply, additional students this year. Um, So, you know, that proves to me right there that it's working. But in addition to that, uh, we had uh, an increase of uh, 24% of diverse students that applied during that time frame, 12% more Colorado residents, uh, more women that applied to uh, business uh, by uh, 24% and uh, to engineering by 43%. Um, so huge numbers uh, there of uh, people that, um, you know, I think we removed a, a barrier and created greater access. And what makes you say that those additional applications are a part of this move? I'm sorry, can you rephrase? Sure. Um, so what makes you say, so like you said, there's been an additional 10,000 applications. And um, are you hearing from folks that it's because y'all have changed the testing requirements? Well, I, I think, you know, testing, uh, what happens with students is they measure themselves against our academic profile. So um, if they know that they have to take a test and, uh, you know, usually a Colorado student takes one exam, uh, usually on a Saturday morning uh, for a teenager in Colorado, probably not a great time to take a test. And they get the results and they look at our College of Engineering, which, you know, is a, a pretty elite, uh, you know, program or 
or, or college, and they measure themselves against that. And, uh, you know, certainly there are uh, students that don't measure up, and therefore they just choose to go somewhere else. So, you know, by eliminating the uh, use or the requirement of having a test score, um, now it's really GPA-based, uh, transcript-based, um, you know, all of those other activities are a very holistic uh, review. And, um, you know, students uh, can have a great GPA and cannot be a great four-hour test taker on a Saturday morning. So, uh, you know, we just, with that increased volume, say, well, this must be working. Look at all of these students that are applying. Clark, how are you hoping that this test optional model changes CU Boulder in the long run? Yeah, so I, I hope that uh, people see uh, Colorado University of Colorado Boulder as a destination. Um, you know, our mission is really to serve the populace of the state of Colorado, um, to, you know, educate and graduate those students so that they can contribute to the Colorado economy and, you know, the nation and the world uh, in just wonderful ways that we have all of those degrees. Chris, Clark mentioned that a student might be a good student but not have taken a good test on the four hours that they took that standardized test. Tell me what else you found is wrong with using standardized testing as a baseline for understanding whether or not a student's going to do well in college. So I I wouldn't say that uh, it's necessarily right or wrong, but I I can tell you the findings um, from the study that I completed um, where I looked at the broad coalition of selective institutions Uh, that had come to comprise the test optional movement by 2016. What I found is that when institutions use test optional approaches, uh, there were increases uh, for several key groups. So there were 10 10 to 12% increases for Black, Latinx, and Native American students, 68% increases in the number of women, and 3 to 4% increases in the number of Pell Grant recipients, a a proxy for low-income students. And at schools that have been test optional for a while, these have held true. Um, Is there a certain message that schools convey to minority students when they go test optional, Chris? I think one message that institutions intentionally put out and and maybe even unintentionally put out is that uh, by going test optional, they convey that they um, view students as more than a number. Uh, That's uh, one of the refrains that I often saw as I was examining these policies before. And for a number of students, uh, that can be an attractive message uh, to, to know that the institution where they're going to be spending four to six years uh, is going to be a place that values them uh, entirely uh, in, in all of their being, not just for a particular number. And Clark, if those numbers, those test scores are not as important, what will you be paying more attention to in a student's application? Yeah, so, uh, you know, most of uh, uh, our peers and CU Boulder read uh, the entirety of the application. So, you know, we're really spending uh, a lot of time and starting with the transcript. And we're looking at four years of study and the sequence of those courses and the rigor of those courses and the performance in those courses. Then certainly we're looking at their essays, their letters of recommendation, um, their activities, leadership, um, you know, could be uh, work, uh, you know, that they uh, are helping to support their family or, uh, you know, working to provide for themselves in college. So, you know, a really holistic uh, sense of uh, who they are. And, you know, we firmly believe that four years of uh, the transcripted coursework tells us a lot more than four hours on any given Saturday. Are there instances when students might want to submit their scores? 
Absolutely. Um, and I think students have to pay attention to who they're applying to because there still are schools out there that require test scores. Uh, but, you know, if a student is, um, you know, an average uh, student in high school, but they take this uh, exam and they score really well, then, you know, they would want to uh, submit that test score. Um, and, you know, they can, again, uh, optional is is the word, um, so that uh, they can choose uh, whether to provide that right away or hold it in their pocket, see how they do on that exam, and then provide it later on. Maybe like even in an appeal fashion where they don't get the first um, decision that they would like. They say, well, hey, can you consider these test scores as well? If that test score is really high, will it have a bigger weight than their GPA? So I don't think it'll have a bigger weight. It's just additional information that we will consider. So, uh, you know, it, it could indicate that uh, a student is uh, very intelligent but not very motivated in high school, but, you know, took that test and scored exceptionally well because of that. And we could say, well, you know, that student's got a lot of potential uh, in that process. And Chris, I'm curious about how test optional practices are different across the country. Does it matter how a school int- implements its test optional practices? Uh, To me, implementation really is key because we talk about test optional as if it's uh, one uh, monolith, but really there are 50 different flavors of of test optional approaches. And so to me, I think some some of the key elements are uh, what uh, uh, admissions criteria receive priority even after the test scores are gone. That's critical. Um, And also, are test scores still required for scholarships? That can have implications uh, for students who are really relying on those scholarships in order to be able to afford Um, to attend. So I I think a lot of these downstream questions are really important, even in the absence of test scores. And how does Colorado compare to rollouts in other parts of the country? So I'd say um, I'm uh, not as familiar on a state-by-state basis, but I do know um, that the recent change in legacy preferences um, in tandem with test optional is uh, an uncommon development. So uh, I think Colorado is truly unique in, in that respect. Clark, how might going test optional affect high school students who had big disruptions to their learning because of the pandemic? Yeah, hopefully it provides them greater confidence in their ability to be admitted. Um, You know, most students that uh, do okay in high school have a lot of options in uh, going to uh, college. And uh, as long as they're kind of open to uh, those options that they apply to, um, you know, they should not have uh, any issues with being admitted uh, to, you know, some of their schools. Um, Certainly, uh, we still publish our, our average GPA. And, you know, what that you know, really is, is just the average or the middle 50th percentile we also publish. So, you know, if a student, uh, you know, finds themselves smack in the middle of uh, that 50%, uh, you know, middle range, uh, then they should feel pretty good about themselves and their chances. Now, certainly it also depends upon, at some schools, the program that they apply to and how many other students apply to that program. It's a competitive uh, process. And Clark, you mentioned that the admissions process without testing, it can be more holistic. Do you have the resources to closely analyze applications for all these students to determine who is the best fit? 
Yeah, that's actually been a challenge for us, right? And we have to, um, you know, continue to hire uh, additional uh, readers or evaluators of, of that process because it takes time uh, to read each file from end to end multiple times before we can get to a decision point. So, you know, it is a resource um, issue, but uh, we've staffed up to, uh, you know, accommodate ourselves in that fashion. Do you see a future where you don't look at any applicant standardized test scores? Well, I, I think, you know, there's this national movement that is in this test optional uh you know, way. And I, I do believe that there are more and more schools that are going test blind, and Chris may be able to answer that better. Um, I, I also see that, you know, this is probably a, a different, um, you know, business model for those testing agencies. So, you know, how will they evolve to meet this new dynamic that's happening? Chris, what do you think? Do you think there is a future where maybe students don't have to take ACTs or SATs or other standardized tests? Uh, so I think definitely after the past year, uh, I'm reluctant to predict the future. Um, I think very few of us could have predicted that we'd be here. Um, but I, I do know that uh, definitely that the movement is ramping up. We're seeing uh, modestly larger numbers of test-free institutions. But one thing that's worth noting uh, just in general is that historically, even at institutions that we're referring to as test optional, uh, about 75% of students have continued to submit test scores. Um, so it would, it would be a pretty dramatic sea change that's possible, um, but I, I don't know and, and don't want to anticipate the likelihood. Clark, do you see this as a way for Colorado schools to stay more competitive now that more schools across the country are going test optional? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think, you know, on the, on the student level, they have uh, the ability to become uh, more uh, competitive in, in the admissions process. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for being here. Clark Brigger is the executive admissions director for CU Boulder. Chris Bennett is a recent doctoral student at Vanderbilt University. He wrote a paper examining the effects of test optional practices across the country. Fred Harris watched the legalization of cannabis pass him by in 2012 from a prison cell in Colorado. Despite being the first state to allow recreational marijuana, the law didn't account for people like Harris, who were serving cannabis-related sentences. It's an issue on something explores this season in a special series called Fair Shake. It looks at what drug laws and the cannabis industry convey about social equity in the U.S. Here's host Anne-Maria Wad. In 1999... Fred Harris went away to prison on a 96-year sentence for cocaine possession. Well, technically, it was for more than that. What were you convicted on? Um, drug charges. Okay. A guy that I was dealing with, he had caught a case, and I guess he had to do a deal sending up three people or more. Oh. And um, he did what you call a reverse thing, so the cops took the dope out of property and gave it to him and sold it to me and bust me in the act of buying from them. Oh, so you weren't even selling anything. I wasn't even selling any drugs. See, Fred wasn't serving almost a century just for this sting. Due to what's called a habitual offender statute, Colorado was able to combine that charge with two previous charges on his record for selling weed, both from the early 90s. On each charge, he could be sentenced up to 25 years. But prosecutors argued to almost quadruple that, stacking the sentences up to make a lifetime. I, I mean, do you remember how they justified 96 years? I think at that time it was like the war on drugs and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, 
society and the, the way people view drugs marijuana and stuff like that. I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were locking everybody up. And it happened most often to black men like Fred. According to the Drug Policy Alliance, black people make up a little more than 10% of the U.S. population, but 40% of the people in prison on drug charges are black. And they're more likely to serve longer sentences for drug crimes than any other group. You know, you want to have hope and try to go to court and do the best you can in court. And unfortunately, I didn't have any, uh, a paid lawyer, I had a public defender. Oh, I see. So, you know, and it was kind of hard. You know, I was in Arapahoe County almost a year, year and a half, fighting the case. Yeah, and he lost, which meant that he was looking at spending the rest of his natural life behind bars, leaving behind his children including his 17-year-old son, Arzell, another casualty of the war on drugs. So, like, for me, when I found that out, man, my heart just, like, fell in my stomach. I kind of just, like, consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. Remember, that was in 1999. Fred wasn't dead. The world just kept turning while he was on the inside. And something big happened in 2012, more than a decade later. Colorado voters said yes to all three proposed amendments to the state constitution. The most contentious issue was whether to legalize marijuana for recreational use by adults. That passed. If you saw the news at the time, from the comfort of your own home, it probably felt like a momentous change, like a big turning point in history. But every day Fred woke up in prison after legalization was a day he wondered what change. You know, you're inside... And to some degree, you can see legal cannabis starting to, like, unfold, right? Right. Like, you're aware that people can go to stores and buy it. How does that make you feel? <laughs> wow, I just felt like, you know, it was unfair. Yeah. You know, you, f- you feel like it's unfair. I mean, it's, it's legalized now. And I'm wondering, why aren't they seeing it? You know? Mm-hmm. Seeing what, you know, I'm in here for, for cannabis. And many, many others, like Fred, watched and waited, serving time for cannabis while Colorado's legal weed industry blossomed into a $2 billion business. And for folks like him, it wasn't like a switch flipped and they just got out of prison. Now, Colorado gets a lot of pats on the back for firsts. First state to legalize recreational cannabis in 2012. First state to earmark some of the taxes for education. First state to create a cannabis regulatory system. But it's pretty late to the game when it comes to social equity. Fred is an unfortunate example. When voters legalized in 2012, they didn't agree to do anything about people like him who were still serving cannabis sentences. In fact, you couldn't even participate in the legal industry if you had a felony conviction on your record, cannabis or otherwise. The result? Today, Colorado's cannabis industry is almost entirely white, with less than 10% of pot businesses owned by people of color, according to state data. How did you get into it at first? 
Um, I got involved with uh, Rastafari. So I was uh, influenced by the culture. You know, and at that time, we were actually asking for marijuana to be legalized. Yeah. If you remember, Petey Tashi had the song out, uh, Legalize It. Yeah. Legalize it. So, you know, that's kind of how I got into that, you know, mm-hmm. from the from the Rastafari and, and the, the culture. And, you know, it's being around that. When it finally was legalized, at least in Colorado, Fred did feel some hope that maybe he would get out soon. But by then, prison had put an enormous amount of pressure on what was already a strained relationship with his son, Arzell Lewis. Growing up, I always had these other kids being around their dad. I used to be jealous mm-hmm. all the time. It was hard. But Arzell says he accepted on some level that he'd never see his dad again. Even after legalization, he didn't think it was possible to get him out of prison. I also had to focus on doing what I was doing. I was trying to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was heartless, because it hurt every day. You know, you can't just forget about those things, but at the end of the day, like, to get through those things, you kind of got to be like, that was like my mind state. Yeah. From hearing Arzell talk about his life, role models were always really important to him. People who were larger than life and did larger than life things. Role models like NBA players who inspired him to try out for the NBA himself at 23. And even though he didn't get in, he went on to play professional basketball internationally. And he also started coaching kids, finally getting his chance to be a role model himself. Basketball literally taught me life. Like if I didn't have it, I probably, I'd be dead or in jail for sure. Wow. Just because of my personality, um, I'm always going to lead the pack. And so if I was, you know, if I was gangbanging or selling drugs, I would have been the biggest drug dealer Colorado ever seen. And not because, I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to glorify that. I'm trying to, I'm literally like proud of myself that like I am where I am today. And basketball would pave the way for everything he does now. He's the founder of Sweet Feet, a nonprofit that gives away thousands of brand new shoes to kids, along with mentorship. According to their website, they've given away just over 11,000 pairs in the last two years. And he's also the founder of Become a Champion magazine, BAC for short. It's a local Denver magazine all about, you guessed it, role models, mostly in sports. He started it in 2000 when he was fresh out of college, and then he turned it into a business in 2016. Around that time, he also tried to get into the legal weed industry himself. He looked at it as a kind of poetic justice. He could make money selling the stuff that put his father away for life. But he'd have to find himself an established cannabis business to partner with. And so out he went to court Colorado's cannabis CEOs. And keep in mind, like I said earlier, most of the people in charge are white. And a lot of the time, it became evident really quickly that these guys didn't look at Arzell and see an equal. Like, I'll give you an example. So one time we had a meeting, we go in, my assistant, she was white. We walk into a meeting and um, the guy at the other business, he had only met me through email. 
so he was like impressed with our magazine and just like everything we're doing in the community. So when we met him, he's like, oh, we were like, hey, nice to meet you. He's like, nice to meet you guys. Where's Arzell? And I, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when, I mean, I was hurt. I was more hurt than upset. I was like, damn, that's messed up. And the girl that was with me, she just turned red. She was like, oh my God, like she was embarrassed for him. So I literally was so mad that I walked out, but then as I, right when I walked out, I turned right back around, came back in, shook his hand, said, hey, I brought Arzell this time. <laughs> nice save. <laughs> now he was so embarrassed that like, you know, he kind of, and now he wasn't racist. It was just like, that's when I realized a lot of people are ignorant. Yeah. Not ignorant either, they're sheltered. Yeah. And so now I look at every opportunity as a learning lesson. It's an opportunity for me to not school somebody, but, you know, give them some insight. Yeah. Because you can, like, people ask, like, how come you guys say the N-word? And I'll be like, well, it's, they're like, but he, they'll say it with a hard E-R. Why is that relevant to starting a business? <laughs> like, But they'll, they'll, this is the conversations that we'll have in these meetings. Oh, what? So why does he even have to have these meetings? Well, starting up a weed business is expensive, least of all because it's not really an option to take out a loan from a bank. It is more realistic to partner with someone who is already established. But no matter how many meetings he had with potential partners, they never seemed to go anywhere. After a certain point, Arzell felt like there was no way into the cannabis industry, at least not for him. It felt like, you know, where's Waldo? But, like, <laughs> there's no Waldo on the, on the picture. <laughs> like, you could keep looking. Like, I've been looking. I searched the whole, every inch of this picture. I can't Waldo's find actually on vacation. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Waldo's under, underneath the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, it felt like legalization had changed nothing. At least not for Arzell or his family. He wrote off the cannabis business for a while, focusing his time on his other businesses, like BAC Magazine, where he was heavily involved, even writing most of the articles himself, interviewing NBA players, hip-hop artists, and others. Like he got a chance to interview Kobe Bryant in 2016, the last time he would end up playing in Denver. For Arzell, it was a big deal, a cover story, and it didn't go unnoticed. One day he got a call out of the blue from a guy who saw it and wanted to nab his own BAC cover story. And uh, he's like, you the owner of BAC Magazine? And I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, LeVar Ball, baby! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you don't know who LeVar Ball is, he's an all-around controversial guy. He's the father of three professional basketball players, LiAngelo, LaMelo, and Lonzo Ball. LeVar is probably most well-known for having a big mouth, though. This is LeVar on ESPN that year, arguing that despite only having played one year of college basketball, he could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. -on -one. We, we talk about the GOAT here, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, and you running your mouth talking about you're going to beat him one-on-one. -on -one. Why would you say something so blasphemous? In my heyday, he would need help. Really? He too really? small. Five-on-five hey, five game, he good. One-on-one, -on -one, I'm undefeated. Never lost. Will you stop it? Don't Never lost one-on-one. That don't make any sense. LeVar is also infamous for making sexist remarks to female sports journalists and refs. 
and for arguing with Donald Trump on Twitter. Look, for better or for worse, the guy says what's on his mind. So in case you hadn't heard of him before, that is who called Arzell one day out of the blue. I'm like, OK, well, how can I help you? He's like, you need to put my boys on the cover of your magazine with the real Splash Brothers across the top. And I was like, do you know who that is? That's Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. He's like, but they ain't biological brothers. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. So literally after that, I just fell in love with him because he reminded me of, like my uncles, you know, even with him saying he could beat Michael Jordan. That's something like your uncles would say. They're like, oh, man, I'll knock Cassius, I'll knock Cassius Clay out. They're lying, but they just trying to... They're trying to build you up. Yeah, yeah. They're like, if I did that, you could do it. Yeah. So in 2017, Arzell goes to meet LeVar to feature his sons on the cover of BAC. So when I first met him, you know, three years ago, none of the boys were in the NBA. Um, so when I got to his house, I really wanted to know if he could beat Michael Jordan. But then, my, you know, my dad called from prison. So he was like, who's that? I was like, man, that was my dad. He's like, what's your dad in prison for? I was like, man, he served 96 years for cannabis. And he was like, you know, he was heartbroken. He was like, dang, that's crazy. So he was like, man, it's my job to get my three boys into the NBA. And it's your job to get your dad out of prison. And he's like, you know, you getting your dad out of prison is um, bigger than me getting my boys, all three of my boys into the NBA. So then after that, he was just instrumental in like helping, you know, get my dad out. At that time, Getting his dad out of prison seemed impossible. Kind of like believing that you could beat the greatest basketball player of all time, one-on-one. Maybe Arzell just needed someone who could make insurmountable things seem achievable through sheer self-confidence. Like a role model of his very own. Just LeVar's power, you know, he had power. He was like, I'm going to call the governor myself. Who is this? Who is the governor? <laughs> he started Googling all kind of stuff, but that's just the type of personality he is. Yeah. You know? And that was kind of hard to argue with, huh? It's like, yeah, why wouldn't I do this? Yeah. Well, you know, when then when you see, like, if there's daylight well, as an athlete, you like, if I get a little crease, a yeah. little seam, I can run through that. Okay. So let's rewind a bit. <laughs> Marijuana was legalized by Colorado's voters in 2012 under Governor John Hickenlooper, who, let's just say, didn't vote for it himself, despite overseeing the creation of a cannabis regulatory system that would go on to be a model for other states. Hickenlooper saw himself as simply carrying out the will of the people. No more, no less. He now serves as one of Colorado's two U.S. senators. By the time Arzell had this fire lit under him in 2017, Hickenlooper was term limited and leaving office. The governor-elect, Jared Polis, was a Democratic congressman known for his support of legalization and the legal weed industry. All of this is to say that in 2018, when Arzell took up the campaign to free his father, a sea change was already happening at the very top levels of government. Polis, this new guy, was a friend to legal weed. And so some of the first people Arzell went to for help were people in the cannabis industry who had the governor's ear. One day he's like, man, I'm going to introduce you to the governor. And I was like, let's do it. <laughs> it's like a, an alliance that 
all the dispensary owners are part of. Mm-hmm. And so the governor was there. They were, you know, they were trying to get the governor to like be a part of some bill. A friend brought Arzell to this meeting. So we met the governor. I, I was just like straight up like, yo, you, you, my dad's eligible for clemency. Let him out. <laughs> just, I didn't know what else to say. No, I said, you should let him out. It, it literally hit him like a bag of bricks. He was like, and he, he had he stumbled for a second. And he was like, "Man, we're uh, we're putting together some some laws and some things and uh, some bills." He's like, "Hopefully that those things can help your dad." But then he kind of walked away. Underwhelming, to say the least. This was his big chance to plead his dad's case, and just like that, it was over before it began. So I was a little bit disappointed, but then like five minutes later, he came back and he was like, tell me your story again. So that's when I got to tell him my story and tell him how my, you know, what I was doing with my magazine, how I'm helping kids with brand new shoes. So he would make it to the governor's office after all. But Governor Polis wasn't the only one listening to Arzell's story that day. So um, literally, I'm talking to the governor and... This guy is just like staring at me the whole time. I'm like, you know, you could feel that. And so he just, you know, he walks up. He's he's like, you know, I just kind of feel like people like you need you need a chance and you deserve, you know, a chance. And I overheard, you know, the story about your dad locked up and he's like, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, he's like we got this program where we want to give people like you a million dollars in their own dispensary. And then so I'm like, you know, I'm listening and he's like, you know, so, you know, maybe you could be that person. And I'm like, so you so you saying you're going to give me a million dollars in my own dispensary? And he's like, yeah. And so I'm like, so what's the catch? And he's like, nah, and we'll even like fight to get your dad out of prison. He's like, we'll put the steam behind it. He's not the only person or they weren't the only people. You know, they were like, yo, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Nothing ever came to fruition. All of those promises sounded way too good to be true, because they were. Even the governor couldn't just wave a pen and get his dad out. Arzell met with Governor Polis later on in his office, and Polis had some surprising news. In that meeting, he was like, man, like, your dad's eligible for clemency, but he never turned in a packet. But the thing is, he did turn it in three years earlier, After the break, what happened to Fred's paperwork? It has been an extraordinary year for CPR News, providing news coverage important to all Coloradans. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of CPR. Your support has fueled and inspired our news team, recently recognized with more than two dozen local, regional, and national awards, including eight regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and a National Press Foundation Award for mental health reporting. These accomplishments were made possible by your support. You inspire us every day. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Fred Harris had served nearly 20 years of what was basically a life sentence by the time his son, Arzell Lewis, was able to mount an effort to get him out. This family felt like Colorado's legalization of cannabis had left them behind. Before the break, Harris Clement- Harris's clemency paperwork had somehow been lost. Here again is On Something host Anne-Marie Awad. 
So like by the time in 2018 that you start this campaign to get him out, you've already filed to get out. <laughs> like yeah, three years earlier. Three, three years earlier. And what But made, it was nowhere in the system. Nowhere. Was nowhere in the system. What made me suspicious or or you know made me aware of, of what was going on because it was guys with, with violent crimes that got clemencies. Yeah. And I'm like Where's my? <laughs> You're waiting for years. Yeah, yeah. he called me. Like he said, I called him, and he said, "Man, you didn't turn in." I said, "Yes, I did." Thankfully, Fred had held on to a copy of his paperwork, and together he and Arzell could prove that it had never properly been filed, that he was the victim of some kind of administrative malpractice. But even after doing all of that and threatening to sue, Fred's paperwork sat on the governor's desk for another year while he was officially considered for clemency. And by this point, Arzell had already called in reinforcements. You know, we had some celebrities, all the people that was involved with our magazine, they all wrote letters um, to the governor. uh, From like Don Cheeto to LeVar Ball, very powerful people in the community. But by 2020, he still didn't have an answer. I guess that's what strikes me is like, cannabis is legal. Your father's still in prison. You're spending years getting him out. Like, at some point, this shouldn't be this hard, right? Like, if cannabis is Man. legal, like. And we had we had talks. And I don't want to mention no names. But we had talks, and certain people were like, "Hey, you know, we're gonna get him on the VIP list. Whenever they, whenever there's time to get people out, he's gonna be on the VIP list." And it was like. Damn, this must be a long-ass club line because this has been two and yeah, a half years. Yeah, that now. must be some VIP <laughs> list. Wow. Arzell had plenty of promises, but his dad was still locked up. By this point, he had had it with people making him promises they couldn't keep. When I heard that his dad had gotten 96 years for um, any kind of possession, who cares? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, we have men out here, you know, white men that are accused of rape and murder that don't get that kind of time. In his campaign to free his dad, Arzell was introduced to something of a celebrity in Colorado's cannabis world, Wanda James. If you've not heard of her before, she's the first black person in America to own a legal cannabis business. She and her husband opened up the dispensary Simply Pure in Denver back in 2015, and they also own a cultivation facility and an edibles business. One big reason that Wanda got into the industry herself was because her brother spent time in a Texas prison for cannabis possession. She met him for the first time later in life and learned to her horror that he had been picking cotton while he served his sentence. So quite frankly, I'm just at a point where I'm just really, really tired of our legal system. And I'm tired of people not doing anything to help people who are in negative situations. And with Arzell, he's somebody that is, he himself has done so many good things here in Colorado and has been such a positive force that, you know, the least we could do was to see if we can make a conversation happen or at least get this in front of the governors on his desk. And Wanda can do that because of who she is. Before she became a well-known name in legal weed, she was an Obama administration official with a career in politics. 
I have a 20 year relationship with Governor Polis. Um, we've been friends for a long time. I've worked on an, uh, one of his campaigns when he ran for for Congress. Um, so we know each other. She was able to get through where so many others were not. I mean, that wasn't hard for me to do. That wasn't a heavy lift for me to do. That's called proximity. And that's why we have to get more black and brown people to the point to where we have proximity to power and proximity to capital so that we're not forever begging people to give us a break. A lot of times what we're talking about is not having the ability to have proximity. And proximity is something that white men have at birth. In other words, they are one degree of separation from, you know, business people, from investors, from lawyers, from doctors. And unfortunately, in the black and brown communities, we very seldom have the opportunity to be one degree of separation from powerful people that can help change the circumstances of our lives. And I was just able to do that. She was able to do what NBA stars, actors and other big players in the cannabis industry could not. But Arzell didn't believe it at first. When we talked to Wanda, <laughs> this is crazy. Like, she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get him out. Just be patient. Mm. Just give me till Christmas. It was like November when I met her. Fred kept calling and calling and calling, asking Arzell, had he heard any news? He kept blowing me up. And I was just like, man, Wanda says you're going to be out. I'm going to resist the urge to make some kind of Santa metaphor here. But it is fair to say that the anticipation was building up to this particular Christmas until finally, just days before the holiday. Literally, like Christmas Eve, I get a call from the governor. I was like, I thought I was dreaming because it was like seven something in the morning. <laughs> but then the whole staff called right after. So then I knew it was real. It was like, dang. But it really became real when his phone rang and Arzell glanced at the screen to see Fred calling from prison. I had been through a three-year fight, so I was like, once it was over, I told him, don't call me no more. <laughs> <get out." laughs> That's true. That's hilarious. Fred was among the first group of people to be granted clemency by Governor Polis. On January 15th, 2021, after more than two decades in prison, Fred was finally able to go home. He went into prison just before the turn of the 21st century and walked out well after Colorado had already legalized cannabis. To him, a great wrong was being righted. But to Arzell, they'd need to go one step further to truly reverse what his father went through. Why cannabis delivery? Oh, man, it's like, for me... Every day when I'm sitting there and I'm like, dang, he's locked up for this. I knew we had to get into the cannabis business. You know, I knew I was like, we not only I'm going to get him out, but I'm going to get him out and he's going to be an owner in the cannabis industry. So I think the delivery business, like, like I said, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's like I saw the positioning and I was like, yo, we can get into this. And we can really run with this. So you're going into this delivery business. Have you ever owned a business before? Not at all. Is this your first time? A legal business. Marijuana, but no, not no business on this level. How's it feel? It's great. Yeah? And uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot from my son, and this guy's an awesome businessman, you know. 
like and you know he's schooling me a lot on what to say and how to say things how to conduct myself around people and the first dispensary they work with may be simply pure which belongs to the woman who helped free fred in the first place wanda james I was happy to be able to help. And, you know, Arzell and Fred, they keep, they say thank you to me a lot. And, and, and I'm, and I'm appreciative, you know, for their thanks, because I think that they're lovely and they're family to me now. So, but what I did doesn't deserve thanks. I'm fighting for us here. You know, I am fighting for every black person out there. I'm fighting for every brown person out there. And so I don't want to use the word obligated because that takes on a different connotation from how I felt about it. I mean, I wanted to do it, but, you know, maybe it is obligated. You know, we're obligated to help each other. Obligated because you can't expect the law to do it. Now, for what it's worth, Colorado lawmakers, including cannabis friendly Governor Polis, have tried to address the equity issue in recent years. And cannabis delivery is supposed to be one way of doing it. Social equity applicants will get exclusive first dibs on delivery licenses for six years, which could be huge since Denver is home to a third of the state's cannabis industry. But Wanda has been around this block a long time, and she is skeptical about whether or not these laws will really turn things around in Colorado. I mean, we're starting 10 years late after there is already an explosion of cannabis businesses. Um, And now we're trying to cut out a little teeny weeny space for black and brown people to have some uh, ownership in the industries. And unfortunately, white men have come in and taken over cannabis and are controlling cannabis right now to the point to where there's really very little that we're going to be able to do to ever find equity in this industry. I mean, that's really bleak. Like, you really feel that way? There's not there's there's not much left to do. You tell me how it's going to happen. So Colorado has 717 dispensaries. If you want a dispensary right now, you can go out and you can buy one. You want to buy mine from me? Mine's five million dollars. You got five million? Definitely not. (laughs) Okay, and that's just for one. So now the issue with my one dispensary the reason why we're still profitable and why we're making it is because we're somewhat celebrities in this in this in this right. space. So a lot of people come to my dispensary. So I don't have to I don't have to compete in the same way that other folks have to compete, right? But if you were to come into this industry today or some other black kid comes in, if you found the five million dollars to buy one dispensary, um man, these guys that own 80 dispensaries that own 90 dispensaries, they're gonna price you out pretty quick, right? This is kind of what Wanda means when she says we're obligated to fight for each other. She looks around at the industry she works in and doesn't see the government coming to anyone's aid. So she and other people of color in the space have to look to each other to build what they need. Because all they have is each other. Arzell and Fred are trying to do the same by working to get more people out of prison and back on their feet. You know, his whole one of his his whole thing is we got to get somebody else out and some other people out that are locked up for cannabis, nonviolent crimes. And when we open our shoe release shoe store, you know, we can start hiring people like that that was locked up for cannabis and giving them jobs. And, you know, in due time, even cats like that, we can give them, a, you know, a job with Duber Express. Duber Express is their cannabis delivery business, and it's opening in Denver this summer. 
Legalization is still this big work in progress, almost 10 years after Colorado legalized in 2012. You know that saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs? Well, Arzell and Fred are the eggs in this omelet. And depending on your point of view, that's how laws are supposed to work. Legalization is an experiment, right? You've heard us frame it that way on this show before. But now, I kind of regret it. To people like Fred and Arzell, it isn't an experiment. It's yet another mechanism for creating permanent inequality. Another layer of exclusion on top of the well-documented injustices of the drug war. An excerpt of On Something with host Anne-Marie Awad. Hear this and all the episodes in series Fair Shake, focused on cannabis and social equity at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts, and online at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Anne Maria Wad, Luis Antonio Perez, Alan Tellis, Rebecca Romberg, Dennis Funk, and the Audio Innovations team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.